0: You know, it seems like the government put a, a bunch of bike lanes around Toronto when everyone was locked down during COVID. How do you feel about yeah, that? I know I'm, it's, I'm, ge- we're going way I'm off generally
1: here. supportive of bike lanes just because I think it, it helps people move and flow through a city easier. Um, having said that, I, I don't think you need dedicated bike lanes in on every road. Um, I, I think there needs to be better cohesion between pedestrians, cyclists and, uh, and drivers. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate.
2: Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. This podcast is brought to you by Niso Studios. The award-winning Niso Studios is a premier one-stop digital studio for all your architectural visualization and scale model needs. Niso can also help market your project and launch your sales center, physically or virtually. Visit nisostudios.com and ask about LiveSite, their virtual sales center software. It's a media darling taking the building's industry sales process by storm. Our co-host is... Mr. Steve Cameron of Cameron Stevens Mortgage Capital. How's it going, Steve? It's going well. I am Ben Myers, bullpen research consulting, market research guy, numbers, lots of fun stuff like that. It's interesting. The people are still looking at deals uh still underwriting uh, projects are you, are you, are you busy
0: are you, are you busy are you seeing lots of uh lots of requests yeah. for proposals yeah it's
2: actually been pretty interesting but, uh and and lots of stuff all over the board Coburg, alliston waterloo kitchener you know downtown toronto is uh, as typical all over the over the gta rental condo yeah so it's been uh, it's been interesting when the covid hit i was like oh crap you know i'm going to go bankrupt no one's going to be launching sites no one to be buying sites so luckily uh they're not so they're, much it's the real estate is a long game so and uh yeah, and as we yeah, know definitely. developers need equity as well they do
0: <laughs> yeah no we've been busy and uh like you said we actually have ventured ourselves into the equity space so historically over the last 17 years we've been uh, doing a lot of debt well, doing only debt lending um you know we have a, a mortgage book of just under $2 billion, but we've never ventured into the equity space where we'd actually partner with a developer. But uh, through COVID and, you know, as opportunities have come up and we've had time to, to look at different um, different ways of doing deals, we actually uh, did our first equity transaction. So we started our, our new company called Cameron Stevens Equity Capital and um, partnered with a local GTA developer. And we bought a site, which we close on at the end of next week, or at on uh, the 29th. But uh, yeah, no, we're we're very excited, and it kind of leads into maybe uh, you know our guest today. Maybe there's an opportunity for the Cameron Stevens Equity Capital fund <laughs> and uh, and this guy to to,
2: to chat. So uh, yeah, why don't you introduce our our, our guest? there. See. very
0: excited to have uh, Mr. Bill Gueriner with us today. Uh, for more than with more than 13 years of experience in the real estate development world, Bill has played an invaluable role in the success and execution of more than 10 GTA projects. Prior to founding Gairlock, Mr. Garner spent six years at Freed Development, where he played a key role in a series of mid-rise city core projects that won accolades and awards for their innovative style and quality construction. Some of the high-profile projects included the Thompson Hotel and Thompson Residences, 75 Portland, 500 Wellington, and the Fashion House. Bill then founded Gerlock six years ago, and Gairlock has completed the award-winning 383 Sororan, and has a vast pipeline of exciting projects coming up to the market in the coming days, weeks, and months. And we are excited to dive into all of that with you, Mr. Bill Gardner. Thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Why
2: don't you tell us a bit about how you ended up just getting into real estate in the first yeah, place? Yeah,
1: sure. I guess right off the gates, I think, Ben, like if you do go bankrupt, you could make it as an announcer. You, you nailed that, Ben.
2: <laughs> yeah thank you yeah. thank you I'll, I'll i'll see if i can pick up some some side gigs on fiverr or something as uh as a yeah, voiceover
0: like probably be- better than me reading the intro and stumbling over my own words yet again <laughs> you think after
1: 12 episodes i'd figure it out that's <laughs> nah, all good man my uh my wife jokes she said if i go bankrupt uh i'm, I'm a big coffee nerd and i got a pretty fancy espresso machine and she's like you could always become a barista if uh if if the real estate thing doesn't work out so good yeah Yeah, you fit the part nice yeah nice you'll get some good tips i think might need like uh different colored hair or different pronouns or something to get a job at starbucks but uh look at this hair yeah i mean i can probably give you some if you want it's it's getting pretty wild (laughs) yeah you look like a professional hockey player
0: that's what i that's what i'd be doing if uh, you know we weren't doing
2: this yeah for sure <laughs> yeah you'd be, you'd be in the nhl for sure you'd be back you'd be back slogging beer again yeah You're a beer, beer salesman
1: too funny um
0: so bill tell us tell us uh how you got started it's a, I know it's an interesting story um how you met peter but why don't you tell us uh kind of how you got started in the business and why
1: yeah, sure. Um, so I guess we're going back to, I guess, 2005, late 2005, and I had, uh, I graduated from Western with a degree in political science, uh, was never really into school very much, uh, was always looking forward to the next chapter, and um, I had a job down in Liberty Village, I was actually working for a company called Cervello Cycles, which at the time was one of the fastest growing companies in Canada, because they were making uh, high-end carbon fiber bicycles, and one of their athletes had come second in the Tour de France that year, so it was going gangbusters. It was actually a pretty exciting little company, and um, I had taken that job mostly just because I didn't have any success at all getting into the development business. I was uh, chasing a lot of different developers in town, trying to convince them to hire me, and I didn't have a ton of luck. And I was always really attracted to what uh, free Developments and what Peter was up to down in the King West neighborhood, uh, primarily. And so uh, once I got that job, I needed a place to to stay. So I scraped together some funds that I'd saved and bought a 500-square-foot condo in 66 Portland. I remember, just as a side note, at the time that I'd done it, I paid... What did I pay? I paid like 180 grand or something like that, or yeah. For the condo? Yeah, it was a condo, a 500 square foot condo. And at the time it was like 380 bucks a foot or 385 bucks a foot. And every intelligent person that I knew was like, the GTA condo market will never go above 400 bucks a foot, period. Like never. (laughs) And I was like, huh? I was like, I was just a young guy. I was like, okay, I'll just adopt that view. And so I just told everyone, I was like, no, this is a cool little like lofty building. I just want to live here. This is not an investment. And anyways, after I bought the place, I read in the Globe or the Post or something that the developer was a young guy and he had bought the penthouse unit in that same building. So... uh one day, I think I was coming home from work or something, and uh, I came into the elevator, and there was a young guy with a Yankees cap on, and uh, he punched the code in to go to the penthouse, like his, his elevator went right up to the top. And so I just introduced myself and said, "Hey, are you Peter Fried?" Blah blah blah, and uh, he said, "Yeah," and. Uh, I just started pursuing him after that. Like he was like a nice looking young lady, even though he wasn't. And uh, <laughs> I, I pursued him for like uh, six months. And finally, um, after he kind of rejected me a couple times, I, I gave him one last kind of chance to hire me, trying to convince him that it would be a good idea, uh, even though I didn't know anything and uh, all I could do was work hard. And he, uh, he agreed to let me come on and help him out. I think originally... I was like, I don't even know what my role would have been. It was basically like a gopher or like a customer service guy. And then he also had me helping with like color selections for (laughs) interior design stuff, which I had no idea what I was doing. Um, So anyway, eventually things started kind of coming off his desk because he was very busy at the time and taking on a lot with not a lot of staff and um, landed on my desk. And I guess I just kind of could learn on the fly and had a lot of opportunities that I probably had no business having but uh, no one else was around so I was able to get a really good uh, crash course on kind of downtown Toronto bid-rise real estate development and yeah just what what to do and what not to do and uh, all those types of things so it was a great learning experience and uh, yeah I'm forever thankful that that Peter decided to give me a shot on that one so I know that uh your, your parents
0: aren't uh, in the' in the development business and I believe actually is it your mother
1: who is uh, an Olympic athlete my dad my mom was dad? Too. yeah my mom was yeah. a ca- Canadian champion hurdler uh, but yeah no my dad went to Tokyo and uh, what you know, did what was
0: what was he what was his
1: sport he was a, he went for two sports he went for well, well two disciplines within track and field so he did the decathlon and the 400 meter hurdles
0: Wow So were they, uh, were they encouraging you to be a a sportsman instead of a businessman or how did they react to this, uh, leaving the bike company to go work and build condos?
1: Oh, my parents are cool, man. They just, they want me to just, uh, to find kind of, uh, a content life and happiness. And, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're cool. No pressure. I'm one of five, eh? So I don't, I don't get, I get, I get one. You don't get much attention. No, no. And, uh, (laughs) Yeah, my sister was a better athlete than me, so all the hope was on her. I don't, I don't nice. believe that. I've learned, See, like, it
2: sets you up. It, 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 I say, it sets you up for jumping through the hurdles that is the city planning department. Yeah, really. Yeah, know? that,
1: that, and a little bit of poli-sci <laughs> help, but, uh, but no, that's that's definitely a component that needs a lot of time and attention and strategic decision making for sure.
2: So, so, how much of the uh, the entitlement process or the planning were you involved in with uh, with free?
1: Well, him and I were hands on on everything. It was basically just him and I at the start. With um, like, not that I started with him, but when I started, it was him and I uh, with like a bunch of bookkeepers and like a couple accountants and stuff. Um, so we took care of all, the entire development process. There, there was kind of no, no one else on board. and then as Peter kind of started to do bigger and bigger stuff and more projects, we eventually brought on more and more people. Um, so I think by the time I left, there was probably, I don't know, 15, 15 to 17 people um, in various components, you know sales, customer service, development, all the, all the different departments. So it was quite a learning experience.
0: So before we move on to when you left, because I, I mean that's uh, a big part of of who you are. Is there any uh, any highlights from your time with Freed that uh, really stand out that you you'd say like you know this was a, a memorable moment or I know there's a couple success successful moments you guys had when Condos were just flying off the shelf and you guys were looking at each other saying Holy crap how is this happening Yeah. I was going to ask, I was going to say like
1: personal or professional moments. Let's go,
0: let's go one of each.
1: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I personally think, uh, y- yeah, not, not to, not to make this like a Peter fan club, uh, episode, but, uh, Pete's like a total kind of visionary and super creative guy. And I think he, uh, I think he leads the market in, in, in those type of categories. And so that was just really exciting to be able to be there on the ground when, uh, King West was really getting rejuvenated alongside kind of what Allied was doing. And uh, yeah, it was just a super cool time. And then personally, uh, fuck, I don't know. We, we had a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Peter had more than me, but we both had a lot of fun. I remember my 25th birthday. Uh, so I was pretty young. Uh, I guess I had been with Peter for, I don't know, less than a year at that point. And uh, he invited me and all my friends i was like hey you know we're out kind of pre-drinking which is what he did in those days we're out pre-drinking yeah. before you go to the bar uh in my place he said well why don't you come on up to my penthouse and i remember all my friends were just like holy shit this place is insane man there's like a pool on the roof and so Pete <laughs> never wanted to turn down a good party at had the champagne bottles going and we, we had a, a real good time and then uh back to his place and back in the pool for the after
2: party so that was a good personal one wow yeah (laughs) sounds like you were just living (laughs) nice Uh, (laughs) nice it
1: was it was was a a good time for sure i was actually at peter's house during the uh
0: during the pandemic and uh i just went over to see him and had in the backyard and we had a glass of wine and he's got two little two little little boys who were really cute and they had a friend over anyways Mm -hmm. and they have a pool so yeah they were all swimming in the pool but time's Times It looks like times have changed a little bit.
1: <laughs> yeah, we were, we were able to connect the same way a couple months ago. It was super nice. We had a similar type of visit, and uh, we were reflecting on the same thing. I said, man, time, time flies, you know?
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So how, yeah, how soon did you get the itch to, uh, to, to start your own thing?
1: Oh, that was kind of always there. Um, so, yeah, I just uh, decided that the time was right. I think I was... I don't know how old I was when I left, but I just figured, hey, I'm like in my late 20s, I'm unencumbered, like I had a fiancé, no home, like no big mortgage, no kids. I said, if I'm going to give this a go, now's the time. And uh, so I figured I could uh, piece together what I'd learned uh, from Peter and from others and um, give it a go on my own. So that's what I did And the first kind of opportunity that came up. Um, was a great one over in Ronsonsville at three Sororan. three So, yeah, was it was able to get that site under contract and then raise all the equity and then take it take it all the way through the whole process from entitlements through to construction and delivery and and all that. So, uh, yeah, that was the coolest Notes. I have version. a question up, up for up you. I've never, never asked you
0: this. I've never asked you this, but before you, uh, it's a it is a great project that I know it won a couple of awards. How did you come up with the name Gerlock?
1: Gerlock means small. From? It means small lake. Um, I just stole it from my great grandfather. He had a company called Gerlock Investments, and he also had a property um, in Oakville that he donated to the town of Oakville. That was right on the lake called Gerlock Gardens. And he was just uh, like a, a stud in his day. Like he he started out as a stockbroker and had made and lost his fortune like three or four times throughout his life and i always just admired wow. admired his entrepreneurial spirit and um yeah i just uh, i just stole the name from him oh, that's yeah. interesting very
2: interesting yeah. it's interesting and and so so how did you know i guess when you went out on your own that you'd be able to you know raise the capital i know you guys got some uh some decently well healed partners. Uh, did, did you know that you'd have those connections before you went out on your I own? I
1: didn't know. Uh, I definitely didn't know. There were certainly some risks there. I mean, even when I left, I thought worst case scenario, I could always get a job as another executive for another development firm based on the experience I had had with Freed. So I felt like that was my safety net. And then I've always been a somewhat confident human being. So I, I did feel as though if the right opportunity came around, that I would be able to capitalize on it and um, that I could have people kind of sponsor me and support me through the journey. Is there any, uh,
0: is there any way you, you want to, uh, talk about some of your equity partners or are those all confidential?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't <laughs> have to talk with them specifically, but they're all just, uh, yeah, very high net worth kind of family offices primarily. And, um, I, I think it's interesting during this kind of like, uh, pandemic, pandemic stuff, like just, how much reassurance that gives you to have really solid partners that um, that you know personally uh, and know their family yeah. members and vice versa and have met their kids and all these types of things. Because I remember, you know, back in my time with Freed when um, uh, going through the 08 stuff and the financial crisis, just how quickly the tone in the room changes when things aren't looking so rosy. And people actually read their partnership agreements and the banks start calling you uh, and those types of things. So uh, I feel very fortunate every day for the people that have uh, kind of uh, supported me throughout my career. Uh, Yeah. So hopefully that suffices as an answer.
0: Yeah, no, it is for sure. I just think that (laughs) like a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot, there's, there's different parts of development. There's tons of different I guess line items in a budget or in a capital stack some of it's debt some of it's equity and where that comes comes from and how certain developers establish certain relationships that propel them to you know different levels is um, people ask me personally all the time about it I know that people may be listening or, or younger people are sort of like how, I get star- how do I get started or how do I get those relationships so I mean, I mean you've done a great job at, at fostering that and then obviously you delivered and the returns are there and if the returns are there that Generally speaks for itself.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of that I'm starting to realize at this stage of kind of where we're at, age-wise and career-wise. It just it really comes down to that reputation stuff. And if you're a conscientious person and do what you say you're going to do or try your best, um, yeah, it seems to be that other good people gravitate towards you, and you can kind of keep a good thing going, right? Like playing playing a similar game with trusted. Individuals seems to yield good results and it provides a certain level of insurance for when things perhaps aren't as good as they could be. So, um, yeah, I, re- I really realized early on that, you know, whether it was a blessing or a curse that I didn't have a $500 million trust fund waiting for me. It was like, I clearly realized that in order to play this game, even in a mid-rise smaller scale, like I do, that you would need partners that had uh, far more substantial balance sheets than i did in order to just 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 to keep the project on track and to guarantee very large construction loans and just to have those strategic banking relationships given i didn't uh yeah i just didn't inherit any of that from a family office or something so yeah beautiful
2: well, one, one thing I admire about you I always, uh, is, is you're always pushing the kind of the boundaries on, on architecture and, and, and your, your projects have all kind of been, you know, in my opinion, pretty stunning looking project. How do you know, how do you determine how far you want to push it in terms of, you know, knowing that, that the construction costs might be higher or you may not be able to, uh, you know, uh, extract the value of, uh, of that in the sales
1: price. Yeah, I mean, I've just always been a design-oriented guy. Like, I remember from a very young age, like, going shopping with my brothers and sisters, and m- my family was like a Winners type of family. Like, we weren't poor by any means, but my mom loved to bargain, and so she would take us to Winners, and I remember, like, my bro would come back with, like, 20 items. Like, he would have so much shit in a bag. And he would just be very, very (laughs) pumped about it. And I would be there like sulking in the back of the car with like nothing. And my mom would be like, what's going on, Billy? Like that's what they all call me. Um, But, uh, and I would be like, all I wanted was like a pair of Air Jordans with like the air pockets in them that my buddies had. And like, that was the only item I wanted. I thought it was really cool. And I was like willing to forgo a whole bunch of quantity for a little bit of quality. And I feel like... Hmm. Whatever that attribute is, I just I just feel like with these mid-rise buildings, uh, even though they're all condominiumized and you're going to hand them off to a condo corp who is likely going to give you a real hard time about very minor deficiencies and be shitty about it. I still want to just to deliver buildings that I'm proud of and like, um, yeah, that I could take my kids by and they could be like, oh, cool, dad, this building stood the test of time and it still looks good. Um, yeah, like today, my, my sister's actually homeschooling some of her kids because of this COVID shit. And um, I met with, she has five kids, which is a little crazy. But um, all five of them came down <laughs> to my Junction Point Sales Center, which I'm launching uh, this weekend. So we just did like a little like 45-minute educational session on like condo development, real estate development, sales center, and Paul That's Johnston. Cool. Paul Johnston's my sales guy. He was there and just taking them through the process. Okay, which floor plan do you want? Where is that on the model? How much do you got for deposits? So when's it going to be due? Like when are you going to awesome. take delivery? So they uh, they had a blast at just seeing their eyes light up about how we were transforming this like little auto body shop into. Uh, an eight-story condo in the junction there they were just like blown away right and then I took them by the slate project next door that uh, junction house uh, so they could see the hole and see the tie backs and the dewatering and everything that was going on and and then the the final part of the field trip was to go by three to three sororan and see what it looks like when it's all done so anyway it was just a cool thing to show the next generation like who knows what those kids will do with their lives but it's cool to kind of make an impression on them and show them what's possible you know
2: that's awesome interesting i mean we we sorry i was just say uh we uh we went out for a coffee probably two and a half years ago and and I knew the uh, the vendor that sold you the Junction project, and he was worried about you know the values that he could get on on that site. And, and when you bought it, you're like, "Yeah, I'm going to launch this above a thousand dollars a foot." And I was like, "This guy's freaking nuts! Like, what is he? What is he thinking? Like, there's no way the Junction is a thousand dollar per square foot market." And then. You know, I went over to uh, you know to Brandon's project, uh, the Slate, the uh, project, and and he gave me a tour before he launched. And he said, "What do you think I'm launching of this at?" And I was like, "I don't know, nine twenty a foot." And he's like, "We don't have a single unit under a yeah. thousand bucks a foot." Yeah, they so, did great. And 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 yeah, I mean, he's and he's done fantastic job, and you know, he hasn't been you know catering to the typical uh investor and and really pushing it to to end users but uh i guess my there is a question here is 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 how did you see the junction as being uh you know really the kind of a next hot neighborhood that 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 you could get over a thousand bucks a foot for
1: i think part of it is just you, you know i think you have a competitive advantage when you're kind of living and breathing the stuff downtown so i was down in king west for a long time and you know for a while there all the hot spots were in king west and then things started gravitating a little bit more west. So it was Queen West, and then you hit some Aussington, and then you find yourself partying with some pretty cool, like artistic, kind of design-driven people out of the junction. And you're like, okay, like, what's going on here, right? So I think you can always get a sense of that if you have your finger on the pulse, with just where the cool retail is going, where the artists are, um, all those types of things. So we try not to completely gentrify a neighborhood that we're working in. We want to kind of complement the unique aspects of it. So I think our Junction Point project does that well. Like we're right on the the gateway to the junction and between our project and Brandon's project um, with Slate there, uh, I think that's going to be really cool. Like as you drive north on Dundas and it starts to bend there, you're going to have two really well-considered mid-rise buildings, which kind of, give you this sense of arrival when you roll into the junction and then proceed on past a bunch of the, the heritage buildings and more character oriented kind of retail that exists in that, uh, in that neighborhood. So, um, but no, I wasn't certain, like, I mean, when I bought that active green and Ross site, um, you know, I think I paid, I paid about 60 bucks a foot for what I thought I could get the density for, um. Uh, when all was said and done at eight stories, which which was I was able to get that approval done in Well, it was under nine months actually, which is which is wow. pretty, which was pretty cool um, That's extremely fast. Yeah, just working with the counselor and the ratepayers and the immediate neighbors and um, a more progressive kind of forward-thinking planner and just really explaining to them how challenging these mid-rise projects are From an efficiency and a margin standpoint and how time really matters. So uh anyway but, but, but when i had that site under contract and was trying to raise some money and stuff like that like a lot of people th- thought it was too expensive and uh, so what did
0: you end up paying when you, with with the density you got what was your all-in price per foot there 65 bucks you're at 65 mm-hmm. wow and you're and you're uh launching this weekend yeah what are you launching at
1: uh, on average yeah like it's certainly hovering around 1200 bucks uh, there's there's product at under $1000 a foot and then there's you know a lot in in, in that range right 1100 1200 and then even above that for some of the premium product so um, but it, it's interesting hmm. if you wow. told, if, if you would have told me that math when i was selling Sororan for 550 bucks a foot and i paid $23 a foot for the land I would have been like, you're fucking, you're fucking insane, right? Like, that's not going to be happening up the road. But it's really yeah. interesting how little awareness there is on how expensive it is to build mid-rise product in the city of Toronto. Like, everybody can be as progressive as they want with policy and all of that helps. But at the end of the day, I mean, between, between your 15 light items in your budget that are all taxes in one way or another, um, going towards city or the province or whoever, um, plus plus your hard hard cost escalation, like it is super challenging. Even at the numbers we've discussed for Junction Point, there to
0: yeah make
1: a return that everyone can get excited about, and I, I guess the main thing with the mid-rise projects, a lot of people also don't like talking about is you just don't have too many mistakes to make, so. <laughs> You're bound, to, you're bound to find things over the half decade process of doing one of these things that you didn't account for, didn't predict. And to have smaller numbers, smaller margins, and smaller number of units to amortize those mistakes over um, just becomes inherently more risky and more challenging. So, um, anyway, to answer your question, Ben, that was, that was a long winded answer. But basically, the design side, I think it all comes comes back to, to help you right like if you're trying to do something in a more curated more thoughtful way, I think there is a market um, to pay a slight premium for that uh, and to be in a more boutique design oriented building but uh, but you still have to make the math work, right The bank still needs to be happy, your partners still need to be happy. So it's uh, it's really tricky to strike that balance. Um,
0: have you Have you thought I mean mean you, you use the example about you know quality over quantity? But everybody in the industry talks about. It mean, does actually doesn't really even matter what industry you're in. You know, if you're in a deal business or the construction business, you know, they say it's just as easy to uh, sell a hundred dollar house as it is to sell a five hundred dollar house, or it's mm-hmm. just as easy for us to do a million dollar loan as it is for us to do a ten million dollar loan. Sometimes it's actually less work to do a ten million dollar loan as it is to do a one million dollar loan.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and and you go to your your example about. Uh, like the margin for error with a, the with a smaller building and the smaller budget is, is, is you, you know, it gets tighter and tighter as the smaller you go. Have you thought at any time, you know, maybe I should go for a 500 unit project and see if I can get the same design out of it or it's just not your style?
1: I'm not sure it would be a 500 unit project, but I think the longer you go at this and the more you understand the business um, everybody naturally gravitates towards larger projects just because you recognize that simple fact that it's exactly the same process if not easier in many cases like one of the projects we're working on currently is at 2939 pleasant with uh, with kingset uh, and harlow Um, so that's a 34 story application and it's exactly the same process as these mid rise buildings, uh, except so you just have less neighbors to deal with. And even in the right at Young and St. Clair, like it's pretty wild. Um, like last night, I had a community meeting for my 3200 Dundas mid rise project, which is eight stories, and it's like 80 stories or eight story. It's like people are saying the same thing, right? It's really hard not, yeah. to, not to get jaded or. Down on the whole process because I do believe in the community consultation process, and I, I think it is a good one generally. But uh, once you do it for kind of over a decade, and um, yeah, you just have, I, I guess, less and less patience for a guy spending half an hour complaining about how your project's going to affect his shower or water pressure or something along those lines. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the tolerance is getting lower.
2: So, so yeah. So- uh, so again, you know, you're, if you're taking partners like King said and in, in, in Harlow, um, you know, you're, you're you're growing. Have you, are you, uh, you know, where do you see you, the company going? Do you want to be the next Tridel? Or are you happy to do one to two, one to two projects yeah, a year? No
1: interest in uh, in the in the big scale kind of take over the world mentality. Like I'm not. I try to keep the ego in check as much as possible and. Uh my only real mandate going forward is doing good projects that uh, I can kind of have some sort of input in and ensure that I'm proud of with trustworthy, good people and partners. So however long that goes or however many deals we do, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I mean, there's certainly been some, some more growth in recent years. Um, and, and part of that is bringing on kind of some strategic people on, on, on the GearLock team, which has been great. So it's not just me doing everything. So that's been a real breath of fresh air. And uh, with with Andrew Woods in particular, who was formerly with Atrium, who I don't know if you can say that on this show, uh, just because they're a competitor with Steve, but no, nah, um, no, they're all they're all we're all friends. Yeah. Okay. All well, you know, good. And and
0: Andrew's it, a great guy too. He's yeah. I, I mean, obviously, we worked with him. He's, I, I can see the value he's bringing right off the bat.
1: Yeah. So with Andrew, it was one of those things where it was like, um, I didn't even know how big of a gap that was in my kind of corporate profile until you just until he came on board, and then all of a sudden, you're in the situation where one plus one equals like six. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't it wasn't linear. Um, and then we brought on some more junior staff as well to help facilitate uh, just through construction drawings and design development and entitlements and everything. So, um, so yeah, I, I think once you're better positioned to take on more growth, you inevitably, you know, we, 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 seem, we seem to have a lot of opportunities that come through our office just through getting a, a reputation for doing some of these more mid-rise style projects. So we, we always try to stay in the mix and be, um, transactional and uh, always looking to acquire new sites but we want to be very particular with the sites we actually see through to fruition and have our brand associated with and make sure that there's a consistent kind of architectural language and and theme to what we're aiming at so um, yeah not sure if I answered your question there but yeah how many total staff do you have now well I guess technically there's only five of us but um, but yeah it, it's really just three key development people
0: Well, it was was just you just a few years ago. I think they were, and and it's it's pretty easy to see. I mean, you did Sororan, and then there was a big a big uh, sort of gap in the or gap in in time where you didn't do any uh, development, and then all of of a sudden it seems like you have five projects on the go. Well, I I wasn't
1: not doing development. I was losing at the Ontario Municipal Board for 49 Lawrence, which was a great Yeah, idea. let's talk about that. So yeah. so
0: everybody thinks that anytime a developer goes to the OMB, they win.
2: Yeah. You
0: put a great assembly together on the south side of Lawrence there. You had a great capital partner. Yeah. And, uh, and you ended up losing at, at the OMB. So that must yeah. have been a real kick in the junk.
1: Well, it's just back to Ben's uh, point about trying to do bigger stuff and understanding the efficiencies of that. So that was like a... I guess, I guess our, our application we ended up submitting and then fighting over was 19 townhomes. And I was working with Peter Clues on it. Uh, and it was a really, I thought it was a great proposal. It was uh, kind of like a blend between like a walk-up apartment, which you'd find kind of scattered throughout Rosedale, and then traditional towns in the back when connected through a common one-level underground. Um, so I I still adamantly believe that that's the type of product that should be throughout the entire city throughout the entire yellow belt should be riddled with product exactly like that regardless of how rich your neighbors are or how politically connected they are or anything to that effect um like i'm I'm a big advocate of like yeah okay you'd have mid-rise along the avenues and then you'd have the next designation in behind that to have uh six-story stacked towns or townhomes or walk-up apartments all the way down to to row housing townhouses and then single-family detached homes but um anyway maybe in that particular situation i just underestimated how influential um certain demographics of people could be um (laughs) <laughs> and so, yeah, we had a six-day hearing. Well, so what which,
0: happened? Like, walk, walk us through it. I mean, so you, you, you assembled the site. You had a bunch of single-family homes that faced Lawrence. And uh, <clears throat> you, you you applied to the city. The city said no. And what was the ultimate reasoning behind the decision at the OMB? you believe it was politically driven?
1: Oh, fuck. I'm not going to go out on a limb and suggest that was the case. Like, I'm sure there was errors and things that we could have potentially um, – done better, but just for some context, I had Peter Smith as my planner from Bowsfields, who's widely regarded as one of the best planners in the entire city, uh, Ann McElroy, who wrote the Midrise Guidelines, was my urban designer, Peter Clues was my architect, and David Bronskill was my lawyer, and that was actually the first pretty time.
0: pretty rock, rock star team right there.
1: Yeah, and everyone believed in it, and uh, that was the first time Peter Clues has ever lost at the Ontario Municipal Board. Most people don't know that, um, so I, I, I hold that... Uh, <laughs> I hold that honor Um, but but anyways no it was just um, honestly I've kind of like just kind of pushed aside a lot of the learnings from that or the the trauma just because uh, I I truly do believe that that is the right way to build out uh, our city and especially our major arterials like Lawrence which is virtually a four-lane highway and I was I think under 250 meters to a Major transit station at uh, Young and Lawrence. There, so the fact that a bunch of people with five million dollar homes didn't want multi million dollar townhomes beside them, um, yeah, it. Uh, I, I, I don't think it was a very strong decision, and I mean, I think, um, yeah, perhaps perhaps the board member didn't have a great grip on it. I'm I'm, I'm not sure, but. Uh, no, yeah I don't I don't spend too much time on Twitter but um, but yeah I, I mean I think I think there are some great voices on Twitter and it's a great way to curate your news and filter out all the noise and just follow some uh, there, there's a couple of people in Toronto in particular who just keep such a close eye on all urban development that you can really save a lot of time by just following them on Twitter checking in once a day Twitter is an an
2: interesting uh, interesting place to try to try to survive, but I, I use it to ask Steve questions because I didn't know what the deferred uh, equity, equity was in the capital stack, but uh, he he ghosted me, he didn't answer <laughs> it, so it's all right. Well, you got some great <laughs> answers from a couple of great sources. so I, I, I was just uh, yeah.
0: curious where you got that that uh, anyway. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's it. It's, you know, LinkedIn's kind of interesting. You know, I, I I'm interested in the backstory, the, the how the capital stack comes together, and and where the equity comes from, where the debt comes from, you know, the how the land value is treated in in these stacks and stuff. That that stuff's interesting to me, even though it's taken me years to try to understand it. So what
1: uh, <laughs> what are you seeing out there in the market, Ben? How are things going in your world? You're you're crunching some numbers. It's a pretty interesting time, and. Uh... Bill, who do you think you are asking the questions around here? <laughs>
2: that's not how this supposed to go. It's it's really strange. I mean, like we've got the you know like just complete collapse of the downtown condo rental market. You know, fifteen to twenty percent declines in the core um, from from rent levels uh, from you know the fall of of, of twenty nineteen yet we still have investors buying 1300 per square foot condos so we've you know we've had a few launches that have you know happened in the covet era um no failures right i mean there's been a couple that have you know slightly slower sales and they've had to offer some incentives but you know product is 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 still selling so that's you know certainly positive for our for our industry but we're starting to see resale inventory uh, increase pretty uh, pretty dramatically and so we'll see how that ultimately impacts the, the new home market um, and, and so I mean I'm still bullish on the city obviously I believe in the long-term prospects of the city and I think investors are buying with a long-term mindset because uh, he's you know obviously these projects are not going to close for three four five and even five years out right And so uh, you know I've, I've heard certainly you know through some of the podcasts that I listen to that we could have a vaccine approved by the end of this year which is which yeah. is you know kind of shocking and then you know 20 million doses produced by by Valentine's Day right so you never know what's what's going to happen if that happens I think and the borders open up and everyone gets vaccine then I you know I think we're we'll be back to the races in our in our marketplace and the fact that you know single family home development is 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 just taken off since then as well so people buying homes without ever you know setting foot in them which is which is which is shocking just shows you how much demand there is uh for toronto and and just i mean fundamentally i just think if if there's an immigrant are they really going to want to go to the united states right now with what's what's happening down there i just think you know toronto and canada is a much better better option so so i I, I think our market will bounce back i actually heard the other day um
0: and this came from uh an investor of ours, as it relates to in, in immigration, who's well connected with the banks and he was at a meeting with uh, the CEO of, of two of the major banks and he was saying, actually just pulled up my notes that they have approved currently 300,000 immigrants to come to Canada and they're all just waiting to come. So they have that those are the ones that haven't applied. They're the ones that had previously applied were approved and are literally sitting with their bags packed. And they believe of those 300,000, 270,000 are going to end up coming to Southern Ontario. I said that right now, no one wants to go to Vancouver. There's very little uh, attractiveness to go to Calgary. Montreal is always, you know, they're they're slow with immigrants because of the language barrier. Um, And they believe, this is coming from the banks, that to house those 270,000, Immigrants, we're going to need at least 60,000 units, at least 60,000 units, and they're going to probably start opening up the border at the end of Q1 next year. So if you look at that math, we're going to, you know, there's going to be major, major um, demand for for new housing. And I think what I've seen recently is the low rise market Yeah, has been hot. Everything's selling. Um, The high rise has slowed. But, but there's there's going to be like this exodus of downtown Toronto is going to end at some point. Um, and if there's a vaccine, Ben, like you say, it's it's coming sooner than I think everyone is ready for or expecting.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm still doing a lot of work for, I do work for two of the, the larger REITs, and they're still plugging away on all their rental development sites, high rise sites, mid rise sites, stack townhome sites. So they're still, you know, pushing ahead. They still believe in the, in the long-term prospects of our market, so if the patient capital is is still there, you know, you follow, follow the money. So well, listen, I, we just we it, just
0: bought a low-rise site for 100 stack townhouse units. Uh, it's at St Clair and Scarlet Road, so it's I mean, it's not out of the city, but it's not downtown core. And obviously, we believe in in that location to continue to be strong. So, what about what about you, uh, Bill? What how are you underwriting in COVID?
1: What do you? Uh, Are you putting a COVID clause in, or I don't, I don't, I don't know if we have enough time for me to get into my COVID theories. Like, um,
2: (laughs) yeah, we do. (laughs) Here we go. uh,
1: Are you an anti-masker? We want our first. We want our. (laughs) No, it's not. It's not so much anti-mask or anti-lockdown. I mean, yeah, I I, I just think it's really interesting. I, I feel like this this whole situation has been really unsettling for a lot of people i think i think for me one of the most unsettling things about it is just the um, the group think the 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 tribe like um inability to think flexibly about what's going on and and the actual data um and then for one side of the debate to have all the empathy and all the compassion. I I don't fully understand that, right? Like, say you are anti-mask and you're anti-lockdown and you don't give a shit about old people. Say that was your position, right? It's like you could make a very strong case that depriving our children of full-time, like like a, a proper education or locking teenagers in their home and giving them... Uh, a life curse of depression and anxiety or uh, middle-aged folks losing their jobs and going on welfare and not being able to feed their families. Like, I think there's enough empathy to go around. And I guess for me, uh, having looked at the data pretty carefully from the start, like even just from that Princess Diamond study, the first one that came out with the 3,000 people on the cruise ship, like I never really outside of maybe the first 10 days where I was like, Hey, this makes sense to pump the brakes and go on pause and to make sure this isn't as crazy as people were modeling, um, with, you know, IRFs of like, um, what were they, they were talking three, 4% at some point, And now we're, you know, now we're down at a pretty strong consensus consensus at, at 0.2 or 0.3 on the fatality rate. So, um, No, I I just think there's there's room for more debate and I think proper science and proper discussion and proper democracy should all have space for different views on these types of things. So I think COVID is real. I thank the Lord or whoever else you're thanking that it's not nearly as deadly as any of us would have thought. And I spent a lot of time concerned about what type of damage we're doing. I have three young children and I spent a lot of time thinking about how this is going to impact their future and our short-term future. I was driving around Toronto all over, West End, East End today, and there's a lot of collateral damage for this. And if you look at the numbers, and uh, Ben, I'm sure you're good at that, but I think I think we're up to around 10,000 deaths in Canada now. Maybe just past it, I'm not sure, but I think we're still like 86% of those or 85% of those are, are in long, long-term care facility homes. So I think that was just a glaring error that, we made as a society like to, to, to think that was a good idea in the first place like hey you know like my, my parents or my grandparents are vulnerable I'm going to go put them in a home with a bunch of underpaid workers uh, without the proper precautions and they're all going to share viral diseases with each other uh, and wait to die I, I'm just not sure that's the most empathetic way to treat older people in general so I get why we're doing it and you have a lot of kind of Two-income working families that can't 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 support the elderly, but I just think it's a bit disingenuous to lock down our entire society uh, and pretend as though an 80-year-old's life or an 85-year-old's life is the same thing as an eight-year-old's life. It's just fundamentally not the case. And although every death is a tragedy, I, I find it very hard to believe that a COVID death at 86, for example, is that much different from um a pneumonia death for an eighty six year old. And whichever one happens to come first, um, I- I'm not sure it's worth shutting down the entire world and taking on an immense amount of debt and uh yeah, nuking our entire economy. But how controversial do you guys want to get with this one? <laughs> <laughs> no, I keep going. I'm, I'm loving
2: it. I, we, I, I, well, we had, we had we had Brad on the show, and he he went, he went off as oh, well. Oh, did he? So, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's important, man.
1: People need to speak their truth without fear of being shamed. And I find a lot of the stuff that's going on, at least in my world, whether it be moms at the park or CEOs in the boardroom or whatever's going on. It's all fucking virtue signaling. People aren't genuinely scared, I don't think. And the people that are scared, um, I I, I don't think know how to quantify risk properly because it's far more dangerous driving on the 401 or the 400 than doing any of these things. And no one seems to give a fuck about driving, right? So the fear, and, and, and I've gotten to the conclusion that maybe humans are just hardwired from a Darwinian standpoint to fear the pandemic type of, idea right like that is something like like I can only imagine how insane people would be going if you did have those fatality rates of a three a four a five or anything close to some of the previous pandemics in history so I I found the whole thing just very unsettling like that moment when you go to the grocery store and there's like shortages on food and everything you're like wow or the toilet paper thing I said like what the fuck is going on here in terms of what people are actually thinking about you know (laughs)
2: So so yeah, I I mean, I mean I was I was you know, I've three kids as well and you know, my my middle daughter was, was not was not doing it well was not, you know, handling it well because uh you know, just not having access to her friends and not being able to uh to you know to go out and 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 uh socialize right and that was you know i was getting worried about her right so
1: yeah it's the same situation like for me a lot of people i think i think i'm a little cold or unempathetic and it's like my dad i went by and saw him yesterday he's 80. it was his 80th birthday yesterday actually Is why i popped in to see him his achilles heel his whole life has been respiratory uh disease like you know asthma pneumonia little things right so and he's got 15 grandchildren And so he's been taking it pretty serious. He's trying to isolate himself as much as he can, and he's been pretty cautious, right? Not so dissimilar from how he would be with the flu or with any other sickness that someone else would have, but he's worried about it, right? He's watching the news and and this and that. But, and I told him the same thing. I said, like, if my dad, you know, who's a former Olympian and who's taken care of his body his whole life, but regardless, say he was obese, a smoker, had whatever inflammation diabetes all these other comorbidities if he happened to die at 80 of COVID it's just it's just not a tragedy it's just, it's just not he's had a long life he's had a good life and when you're 80s and when you're in your 80s you, you start to understand that the horizon of your life is near and so um, yeah I, I just I just yeah, fundamentally struggle with a lot of the kind of core underpinnings of some of the decisions that are being made. Um, but,
0: yeah, anyway. No, I, I hear you. I think that where you're coming from, though, is, is much different um, than where a lot of people come from on a practical basis because I, I do believe that what you're saying um, played out in, in, in society. Like, like you, you're totally right. It's It's not... The same to have to have an 86-year-old die in a nursing home from COVID or pneumonia or the flu or any other viral disease, um, as it would be to have a younger person pass away. So, you know, those lives aren't necessarily comparable. But when you say that, I think it comes across as unempathetic, and I think it comes across as discompassionate, and I think it comes across as um, you know, you're this like right-wing anti-masking. Gutless, heartless human. Yeah. And, and I think the media has done a phenomenal job at portraying that. And I don't think that in any, I mean, there's a debate tomorrow night between Trump and Biden. There's a big election coming up. You know, you, you, you get crucified. If you have an opinion that's unpopular with whatever the secular secular media wants you to have that uh, as an as an opinion yeah i mean we can could, we could go um, down and, the total and we'll,
1: rabbit hole on this i totally agree with you and like anyone who thinks some random guy in china ate a bat and that's what caused this whole thing uh, i think you also need to kind of check you get a reality check right like in a trump election year when the economy's roaring um yeah to have just the right type of pandemic spread and and clear out vulnerable sick old people but not do much else i think is uh like even just knowing what i know from a search engine optimization standpoint or from uh like a like a paid digital advertising standpoint you could put five million bucks behind this idea like globally and the way we operate with social media the way the news picks up everything a couple key influencers you could continue to spread this for as long as you want like i was at the dentist this afternoon I had three ladies, uh, like dental hygienist, and then a and then a dentist helping me with a cavity, and on CTV or what is it, oh, City TV, the, the the one with the ticker, right? It's going, it's like eight out of the ten things that cycle over the full hour are all COVID related, everything, and it's all breaking news. This is how many cases. This is how many people died, and I'm just really surprised in the just the low resolution thinking that no one can get beyond. It's like okay, like how many people did we test? It's like okay, like there was nine people who died. Okay, like how old were they? Like that's not in that news reel. Like people, it's just not even discussed. Were they an old age homes? Well, this whole
0: the phase, the phase two that we've shut, we've gone back to phase two because there's been increasing cases. But we tested fifty thousand people, and there was nine hundred cases, so under two percent of the people had oh, it. Man. And of those two, of those nine hundred, I think there was like not nineteen in the hospital. I
1: think for me, it's like this is the best fucking scenario you could have asked for like to be doing an insane amount of testing like if this was the verdict that everyone settled on in the spring being like hey you're going to be like have insane capacity to test a whole bunch of people and there's going to be very little hospitalization very little icu beds being used no demands on your ventilators and very little deaths you would have been like thank fucking god you know what i mean like that's a a great outcome for all of us and the the political pivot from flatten the curve to, hey, let's all hide in our houses until there's a vaccine. So like that's a that's a total 180 and it's politically motivated and I don't think it's wise. And, and, and I don't think like everyone who's talking about a vaccine, I, I think that's stupid too, because like back to my dentist chair this afternoon, there's three ladies in the room One's 60, like the dentist was maybe 55, 60 or something, and then the dental hygienists were all younger. Mixed races, age, whatever, right? I just asked all three of them, would any of you guys take a vaccine? No, 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 all three of them. All three, All three? No, three, 100%. And wow. I said, I'm not taking a vaccine. I would rather take a COVID injection into my arm than a vaccine. Because at this point, I'm a young, healthy person. And I don't know if the proper testing has been done. And I'm not an anti-vax person. I would say, like, I would get my kids vaccinated for the flu um, or this or that. But um, I, I, I don't think, like, we need a vaccination against fear and media problems. Like, it's not the disease itself. Is like, like I said, thank goodness not nearly as deadly as we initially thought so we should all be celebrating and happy about that versus hiding and waiting for a vaccine that i truly believe like like steve uh, steve you're my age i've been too i think like i'm pretty sure the data shakes out that like we're more susceptible to the flu than we are to COVID. like it's inverse as you get older but like did you take your flu shot this year no 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 (laughs) no like ben did you take your flu shot
2: my, my my family did, but I think I for somehow okay, missed that okay. day. Okay, so like but... you're a data
1: guy, Ben. So it's like, what sort of logic did you use to suggest that you'd go and get a COVID? Like, is it is it because COVID's popular that you would get a COVID vaccine versus a flu vaccine? Because I'm not sure, like the the math and the data for younger folks is like you have a higher chance of the flu than you do of COVID. So, um, like the kids, it's like it's, I, I had a nurse over from um, Sick Kids the other day. She was taking some pictures on my property, and she runs—I um, for, I forget what the name of the department is in, in Sick Kids—but they said they have sixty-four kids in the hospital at Sick Kids. This is last weekend um, with COVID, and they had no no idea any of them had COVID. They were non-symptomatic. Um, And not a single one of them are sick. They all broken arms, this, that, whatever, uh, other things going on that brought them into the hospital. So I think it's far more rampant than we think in the youth. And then, um, yeah, just thank goodness. Like, I I think my views would be so different if this was something that was impacting uh, young children. I I just think that's a fundamentally different, Mm -hmm. different problem to have to address. But I think this whole sit around and wait for a vaccine thing is, again, just a a bit of a scam i i I, every single person i have coffee with and it's obviously a skewed data sample but you know people from our industry from all over i'd say i'm going like 80 20 on no versus yes for vaccine like i don't know try it try it when you guys have your coffees have your meetings there they ask people who would get one who wouldn't with an honest conversation i bet you'd be real surprised interesting yeah, no, I, think, I think
0: obviously there, there's been a huge amount of fear and, and doubt and uh, our fear and, and uncertainty and doubt. And, and it's just been fed to us through every media outlet. And, um, you know, it, it makes it hard to, ha- to, to have an objective opinion. So I appreciate everything you're saying. And I, I think you're on to a lot of great things. But I guess that, I guess, you know, the counter to that is if, you know, if I have to wear a mask, so I um, can avoid getting it. So i I can make sure that I don't get, you know, my grandparents sick and my parents sick. Then I'll probably just do it.
1: Yeah. I Would
0: don't you know. also not, you not killing and then me?
1: You'd also inject a foreign substance that you're not quite sure that the testing's been done. No, I'm not saying no. Not about a vaccine. I'm just saying if I have to. But that's what I mean. No, it's a slippery slope. Like remote. I agree with you. It's like, oh, okay. Like we're Canadians. We're polite. Like at least some of us are. But it's like you know, I should. Um, I could do my part. I could wear a mask, and I do when I need to. Like it's law. I follow the rules. But I, I think. I find it offensive in a certain way because it's like, it it there's there's something about, yeah I don't know just just having your own breath restricted I don't know something it's, it seems very personal to me and then, like my mask is cotton like uh, who, who's got any data on any cotton doing. F- Fuck all to spread anything. There's no no data because I see everyone
0: with these like flimsy little masks. I mean, listen, we could go down and Yeah, well, the thing is, like, people, humans don't wear
1: them properly, and the data's mixed. I think there's been 40 years of research on mask use, and I listened to this one podcast that had 12 uh, virus specialists on them, um, and they said they meet bi weekly, like, well before COVID started, and they're split down the center on masks. Six were like, no, masks can help. They could they could deal with like traumatic events like sneezes and big coughs and things like that and it's probably wise to wear them. And then the other six were not not only not supportive, but they were suggesting that it's actually problematic. Like any humans who wear a mask for an entire day yeah, in particular, it's like you're touching the thing like all day long. You're not wearing it properly. You, the disease could fester within the mask. Like there was a whole bunch of arguments as to why it wasn't even a good idea. So I'm not sure we can really have much of an impact on any of it. And then the lockdown thing is just next level crazy, right? Like like uh, from a freedom and uh, standpoint. But how did we get this far into a rabbit hole on COVID? Like who asked <laughs> this question? I don't know. That was I don't Ben, know. right? Did Ben know. ask that? No, you asked. Way to go, Ben.
2: <laughs> no, no, definitely not me. But yeah, it's it's interesting. Just you know, someone someone uh, in Queen West and and Queen East, you know, it's been going around taking pictures of like listing signs on on retail, and uh, and they had uh, shown that in in Queen West, there's a twenty percent increase in the number of vacant shops just over the last uh, six months. Right, so it just shows that yeah, a lot of these retail shops are are getting killed, I and mean, you know how much of that is is COVID versus you know people shopping online and and uh, people not going to uh, to small retail places, and certainly on you know on the Danforth the only new shops that are being put in are either cannabis or coffee (laughs) those are the two shops that are getting uh put in on on the danforth near near where i live and and you know i'm also close to the beaches so you know i just see just just constant turnover and in 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 retail and and you wonder how some of these people are going to survive so i try to order out as much as possible and my you know i i can't fit into any of my suits (laughs) My pre-COVID suit, so from all my ordering out, but I want to support some of these these businesses. I think it's really so important, it's important, man. Like it's,
1: everyone, like if you believe in like uh, like urban development and living in cities, I think you have to weigh that. Like all of your um, environmental initiatives, your transit initiatives, your density initiatives, like are sick uh, eighty-five year olds at the end of their life more valuable to extend their life for one month to six months to another year is that more valuable than all of those other things like I was out riding my bike on Sunday as a healthy young fit person and like not only do some people like give you a hard time not wearing a mask when you're riding which is fully ridiculous but beyond that I was with a city councilor who if I heard him correctly, I believe it was something to the tune of like the city of Toronto is losing, I think it was around $20 million a week in terms of the the, 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 tra- the transit usage issue. So it's like some of these things as a society, like how how do we make up for that? Like who thought a lockdown was wise um, for all these other things that are super important to a go forward society, right? Like, and, and if you want to take a super empathetic view about it, you could take all the money that we have spent on this today from CERB and all the other government initiatives you could take every 80 year old or everyone over 75 or over 70 for that matter you could put them up at the fucking four seasons and deliver them uh, five-star meals in hazmat suits and treat them better than anyone could have ever imagined if that was your true initiative was just to extend the lives of old people so i just think the whole thing needs to be really well thought through and i'm just really surprised that there's so much social scorn for anyone who actually wants to have an intelligent conversation about the pros and cons of what we're doing. Well, I hope no 85 year olds listen to this. And uh... yeah, don't tell my dad. <laughs> don't send it to my dad.
0: I won't. No, but let, let, let's 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 uh, let's take this one controversial topic and uh, and move on to another one and try and bring it back to real estate a little right. bit. And uh, this is <clears throat> something that uh, Ben and I were talking about. And uh, and talking about Toronto and development and, and, and our identity and um, you know one of the uh, the hot topics lately has been you know the displacement or the replacement of key Toronto establishments such as for example Sneaky D's or Wayne Gretzky's and um, on the chopping block is the co- the Crock Rock um, you know do you think Toronto is losing its identity with getting rid of these places or are you um, of the belief that we, we need to displace these these local establishments with uh, with, with condominiums.
1: Uh, well, whether it's co-
0: loaded yeah, question. Yeah,
1: so I think there's there's a lot there, but um, I think for one, as a development industry, we can do a lot better from an architectural standpoint, and there should be pressure to do so and to work with reasonable city staff members and reasonable councilors, which there are some. To try to deliver the best results we can as a development community, Um, but to use heritage as like the latest NIMBY tool um, to limit density or height or new housing for folks who can't afford multi-million-dollar single-family detached homes, I think is um, is a bit of a travesty. I don't I don't think like sneaky D's, for example. is, is interesting from a heritage standpoint at all um, I think the proposal that would put forward is not my favorite either I don't even know who's doing it so I should be careful I don't want to uh, give any of my friends a hard time but, um, but no, I, I, I just think her- heritage is like a, <laughs> like a sword that's being used um, even if you're on the same block I'm working on the project and there's a claimed heritage um, uh, house on that same block like I don't abut it Uh, I don't impact it at all, and I have to do a full heritage impact study and talk about the thing, and I don't think it was even prominent uh, heritage architecture to start with, right? So a lot of these things can just be used to... Uh, further delay and cause further expenses to the development community and trying to deliver appropriate housing going forward.
2: Yeah, it's it's crazy that, <laughs> I, I mean, a restaurant can move. I mean, Wayne Gretzky's is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's Hockey Hall of Fame meets friggin' Chili's, yeah. you know, <laughs> Jack Astor's, right? Like, you could literally move it, you know, two doors down, and you still have the same experience. It doesn't need to be in that in that location. And uh, and Sneaky D's moved once before. Why can't it move again? I don't I don't see why it's such a big deal to, to change locations. My barber, you know, they tore down that building to build a condo, and I took his business card and he moved to a new location, and I went to that new location. I mean, it seems pretty pretty simple that we wouldn't uh uh try to stop development uh just for a you know a retail shop or something like that so th- yeah I it's kind of interesting but uh,
1: I, I, there's not too many issues that are more important than housing and Toronto is a world class city and we require a ton of housing and based on some of the planning provisions you know, based on the lake uh the sprawl option is not really available to us and that's that's a blessing I think so Density is the answer. And a lot of people who are concerned about change and um, yeah, new folks moving into their neighborhood or losing value on their properties or things like that. I just, like I I tuned into one community meeting the other day and some guy's honest concern was that a new condominium that was gonna house like 200 people on a major subway station was gonna interrupt his afternoon cocktail in his backyard. That was his legitimate complaint in front of hundreds of other people as to why this development should not be going forward. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> the fact that you have a counselor who's actually taking something like that seriously, and the guy felt that he wouldn't get ridiculed for saying something like that, just really shows you how much is wrong. Like, hey, like I'm going to sit in my $2 billion house or in the backyard of my two billion house and I'm going to complain about the potential for 200 new homes, for 300 people to live in those 200 new homes, right on top of a subway station in Midtown, Toronto. Like, that's my position. i so, say, wow, that's a, that's a really interesting one.
2: Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, there's so God, many. So the, the the number of selfish people and and, and the amount of people have, I have no shame trying to, uh, uh, you know, to either talk about that's going to bring their properties down or it's going to gentrify the neighborhood. You get it both on the, the far left and the far right fighting these fighting the development. So it's it's difficult. You get it on get it on both sides. Well, I mean, sides, having said that, like we're, just, we're, just as a
1: quick disclaimer, like change is unsettling. Like when it's on your street and it's next to your house you want to make sure you have a say and you want to make sure people follow the rules and there's good architecture there's bad architecture there's good development there's bad development but it's important not to conflate those things right like no change for the sake of no change is not a good argument you
2: know for sure well we we've taken up a lot of your time i think we only have a couple questions left but uh um actually i thought this was an interesting one i wanted to ask you about but uh, uh and, and uh there's been, you know, this year it hasn't been as many, but, you know, a couple of years ago there was a number of, of condo failures, project cancellations. I'm curious from your perspective, how do you view that? Do you view that as hey, well, that's one of my competition, you know, off the board, you know, losing money or a site that I could tie up? Or do you see it as, oh, that's terrible because you now it's impacting the the market in a negative way and the perception of buying a pre-construction condo? Or are you somewhere in the middle? <laughs> um,
1: the, the, the latter. I, I think it's shitty across the board, um, both for the developer and for the Uh, well the investors and for the purchasers so I'm never happy to see a project um, fail or have to relaunch or something like that I think it's bad for the industry and as a smaller builder without the reputation of a a Tridel or a Daniels or a Mattamy or something like that I think it undermines the efforts of everything that we're trying to do so um, I think it's important not to be too critical of those situations because that can happen especially in a market that's moving so quickly from a like a revenue escalation standpoint and a hard cost escalation standpoint. So it's like a double-edged sword, right? The way our banking structure is set up where you need to, you know, get 65, 70% of your pre-sales in place. um, And then you have to get tendered shortly thereafter. It, uh, it leaves you vulnerable to market conditions for potentially too long if you're not organized or if the world turns against you. So um, no, I think that's a real problem. And, hopefully everyone that happens to can learn from their mistakes or from the conditions that caused it and uh, move forward towards uh, more successful developments.
0: Should should there be more enforcement or more regulation around launching projects before approvals are in place? Do you think that should be a mandated uh, policy?
1: I, I don't know. As you could probably tell from my COVID views, I'm not a big government intervention guy, but I would think there is something to be said about educating the public and I do I do think Terrion does a good job in that regard like every purchase and sale agreement has like four pages of, of information at the start on critical dates on when the project can be cancelled when it can't be cancelled and I, I do think that the vast majority of Toronto condo purchasers are like way more sophisticated than typical markets because there's, there's just been so much product and uh, yeah so so yeah that would be my view on that.
2: Well, why don't we move yeah. on? To, we have a, we always do a little bit of a, a, a rapid fire um, questions here, and uh, you feel free to say yes or no, and, and if you do feel like you need to uh, expand on it, um, feel right. free. So we call, we call Steve, it rapid fire,
0: but every time we've ever done this, it always gets elaborated into a longer <laughs> discussion.
2: But <laughs> yeah, do what you can. So do what you can. You want me to do the first one, Steve? Take it away. Yeah, go for it. Sure. Would abolishing single-family zoning drastically improve housing affordability in the GTA? Yes. Would you build a six-story wood-framed project? Yes. Do you like inclusionary zoning? No. <laughs> I think we already know the, 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 his answer to this one.
0: <laughs> Should the city mandate a certain percentage of units... As three-bedroom units?
1: No, but with the disclaimer of I think it's a well-intentioned policy.
2: Who is someone that you really admire in the industry that you're, you're, you're impressed with their, their intelligence and, 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 uh, and execution?
1: Peter Gilgan.
0: Between Sneaky D's, Wayne Gretzky's, and the Croc Rock, where did you frequent the most and where did you have the best luck?
1: I, I think the the rock that one on Adelaide that was uh, for the yeah. bachelorette parties and stuff. That was uh, that was that was quite a spot for a while.
2: Was it, it was a good it was a good place to go to on like uh fireman night or policeman yeah. night and people would uh, would ask if you're a fireman or policeman when we
1: were the size of ben and ben's like i'm both yeah I'm it was like both, a tuesday baby. corona thing or something some sort of deal i remember
2: i was gonna make some kind of joke about uh handling a, a large hose but we won't. <laughs> <laughs> too funny <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Who's whose turn is it? Mine. Yeah. Yeah. So you're a big biker, uh, both road and mountain. Do you have a good biking story you can share? It's not a yes or no question, Steve. You wrote that one. Yeah, I did. I was trying to incorporate. You know, Bill's Bill's a huge huge into the
0: biking scene. He loves. We actually usually get into talking about bike lanes, and we talk a lot about uh, the, the bike lane policy versus the uh, the car. Actually, I'd be very interested on your take on that because you are a bike guy, but. You hate government intervention, so you know it seems like the government put a a bunch of bike lanes around Toronto when everyone was locked down during COVID. How do you feel about that? I'm I'm generally
1: supportive of bike lanes just because I think it it helps people move and flow through a city easier. Um, Having said that, I I don't think you need dedicated bike lanes in on every road. Um, I, I think there needs to be better cohesion between pedestrians cyclists and uh, and drivers because i as as an avid cyclist i find a lot of the cyclists in the city of toronto fucking unbelievably annoying the way they conduct themselves so i think there's something to be learned there um and then at the same time having commuted by bike for over 10 years to work every day to and from um it's terrifying like every single year i would have at least one accident uh including one time when I was coming back from a site visit at Sororan, and I was coming, this, this is a good, this, this actually answers your other question as a funny, maybe not so funny, but somewhat scary story. So I'm coming back from Sororan, things are good, projects on time, on budget, feeling great, uh, come over the gr- the bridge uh, where Dundas and, and college come together. And you know that triangular shaped site in the middle there with the gas station, like I was, I was yielding left and you have to like kind of bunny hop over a bunch of streetcar tracks, which is challenging in and of itself. And then you get to carry some speed as you kind of run down towards the intersection. at I guess that's Lansdowne and, and, and College, right? And so this plumbing truck... Uh, pulls out of the gas station and there's a dedicated bike lane um, on on the right hand side if you can envision that so he pulls out of the bike lane and i've got a whole bunch of speed so i'm just like okay great i'm gonna cruise like i'll keep my speed instead of braking because he just pulled out of this gas station so i'm good and i'll just pass him on the inside like on the right because i have a dedicated bike lane i felt a certain level of safety right and then i guess it was a rental truck and it was an older italian gentleman and he had been trying to fill up the gas on the wrong side of the truck. So he immediately pulled right back in to the gas station. And yeah, so I was right in his blind spot when he did so. And instead of like t boning like I basically hit him instead of him hitting me. But I kind of like lay the bike down and, and kind of hit him, kind of slid under the truck. And he had no idea that it had even happened. He just kept on proceeding up into the gas station. So... If you can picture this, I'm, I'm a pretty experienced cyclist and I find myself laying on my stomach underneath a fucking plumbing van with the plumbing van. Like I can hear him press the gas again and I'm looking back towards the rear tires as they approach me. And I'm like, I'm literally thinking of like, this is how stupid I am. I'm like, I'm going to flex my abs because this truck's because I tried to push back with my hands to slide out on time, but I couldn't get my chest high enough to get any leverage to push back. So I was literally just pinned underneath this guy's truck as he's proceeding forward and he presses the gas and I'm like, oh shit, man, this is not, this is not a good situation. And sure enough, his rear wheel, which was, it was a rear wheel drive plumbing van, um, got hung up on my bike like it ran over my tire and my uh, my wheel and he just started spinning and that gave me enough time to slide out and get to safety and like that that was the only reason so I was like geez like you know that's a situation just I mean it's a long-winded story but to answer your question about bike lanes and a false sense of safetyness, I think at the end of the day you need you need cooperation between everybody and respect, and it's, it's a hard thing to achieve if you don't have the proper infrastructure, you don't have the space, and you don't have a long history of a lot of cyclists on the road. So, um,
0: so what happened? Well, hold on. So what happened here? Did, I you, I was you... just
1: scraped up a little bit, and I, I slid. I like I, I crawled out because he realized he couldn't go anywhere because it's like it doesn't have a limited slip differential so just the one tire was spinning and he wasn't moving anywhere so he got out to see what was going on that gave me time to to climb out um and then I just had like a thank the lord type of moment where I was like gee that was uh that could happen real fast right and uh he was a very nice man he felt terrible he paid he paid me my bike was totaled he gave he gave me some money for my bike and uh oh, that's that, good. Was, that was it he was a very nice man like he was very distraught he had no idea like it wasn't even really his fault like it was kind of my own doing but uh, any, anyway mm-hmm. that that's uh that's definitely not a rapid fire question answers for you <laughs> it's a good yeah, story that's though. It's
2: making me scared i was like did he get run over oh my god yeah
0: <laughs> yeah edge of my seat no, okay here's the next one we got three left, and we kind of touched on it so you can't say barista but what the question we always like to ask our guests is if you weren't a developer what do you think you'd be doing today
1: Uh, Yeah, so I would. This is kind of funny. I would be like, I would have my own trail building company where I would spend all my time in the woods building mountain bike trails for property owners and municipalities and stuff like that.
0: That's awesome. That's a recent. That's a recent passion, isn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah. I've 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 moved up to King and I've got a little bit of land and we've uh, throughout COVID. everybody who lost their jobs or got laid off was coming over and we had a lot of time in the forest uh, building mountain bike trails. So we've got uh, a substantial network now and it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing to be able to kind of apply some of your design aesthetic and love of the outdoors and athleticism towards like flowy, fast, fun mountain bike trails. Awesome.
0: Wait, you forgot, the last, you forgot the last and most controversial question, number 10. I, I don't want to well, know the
2: answer if it's the wrong answer. What is it? <laughs> Trump or Biden?
1: I can't stand fucking Trump. Like, he's got to be the worst human being going um, from, a nar-
2: okay, right from, a, answer. from a narcissistic,
1: kind of just terrible person. Um, having said that, from a policy standpoint, I'm far more aligned with Trump. And I also have maybe maybe $1,000 worth of bets with various individuals over the past four years that Trump would get reelected. So it's not looking good lately in the polls. Um, So so yeah, I'm definitely uh, in the Trump camp, camp, but with a massive asterisk. And it's funny, sometimes I go out, I have a hat that says, it's in the same colors as Trump's, in the same font. And it says, uh, make Trudeau a drama teacher again. And uh, I, I wear that. Oh, yeah, I wear that. that one often, and get a lot of looks about it. So,
2: <laughs> well, we appreciate yeah. you having you having you on the show, and uh, you know your 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 insight, and, and good luck on your launch uh, on the weekend.
1: You'll yeah, have to so come back.
0: Are
2: people? Uh, Are people available? Can anyone pop in and
0: and see the sales center this weekend? We'll try and get this live by Friday morning. Yeah, that
1: would be great. And Um,
0: it would be great if uh, listeners could could come and meet you and uh, shake your hand. Yeah, there's not a
1: lot of handshaking and there's not a lot of parties uh, based on on the topic we discussed.
0: Elbow bumping. Yeah which bumps, also
1: yeah. makes no sense because you get your face way closer to the other person's face but anyways that's a, a separate conversation but no we're uh, <laughs> we're going by appointment only and uh it's packed like i can't believe the demand um i actually wanted to ask ben a question just to, on on his data collection whether he kind of denotes the difference between investors and end users because we really kind of uh, tailor our stuff towards end users but you also have kind of mom and pop style investors who are looking for more boutiques, smaller projects and different type of units and stuff like that. So it seems like there's a huge demand and appetite for that project in particular. Um, so we're really excited about it. I think we have 40 appointment slots throughout Saturday and Sunday and they're already booked up. So we have to open up Tuesday, Monday Tuesday and Wednesday for more appointments so hopefully that's a good sign of things to come
2: nice Amazing. yeah I mean I because I write an article in condo life magazine and, and next home magazine I every once in a while I'll just get called by investors out of the blue and they they ask for my advice right and uh, and it's always kind of interesting that so many of them prefer the 500 600 square uh, you know you mean unit buildings like right in the core and, you know, and I and i say well you know when you're selling this thing and if it's in down market and you're selling and there's 30 other units that are the exact same floor plan as yours you know you're going to you're going to lose out right and and they you know, and a lot of them don't think that would ever going to happen, but we're kind of getting into that situation now. Where there's 30 the same floor plan in some of these buildings yeah. that are for sale right now. And if you had bought into a boutique project where you had a very you had a unique uh, view or a unique plan and in a more walkable neighborhood, then there's the opportunity for for bigger premiums there. Yeah. So, yeah, it's always uh, it's always interesting to, to to get in the mind of of some of these investors and what they what they value the most.
1: Oh, for sure. Okay, guys. Well, thanks so much for having me. Eh? Sorry uh, to go over time here.
0: No problem. Thanks for joining us. And if anyone uh, wants to get uh, a hold of you, are you, you're not really on the uh, social no, don't. The Social, uh, social media, media is like
1: a bad scene, man. I just use it for news. But uh, I think we do have a hand. I think it's uh, at Dev. I think. Um, and then uh, just for, for Twitter. And I think, I, I don't know what's going on with the Instagram channel and the Facebook stuff. But... I'm sure if you search Gearlock Developments, you can find us. Uh, we use them for promotional uh, purposes primarily, and um, yeah, then our website is uh, I think just Gearlock.ca, and um, yeah, and for Junction Point in particular, if you are interested, you can check out the website there. Uh, you can kind of check out the digital brochure, and it's all COVID friendly, so you can do your thing.
0: Awesome, and and we didn't touch on it, but for Bayview Avenue, which is another. Uh very prestigious project which is uh, for sale right now if anyone wants to check that out.
1: Yeah, that one's uh, Yeah, it's
0: 1414
1: yeah, Bayview, exactly 1414 Bayview. Uh I think it's .ca and um yeah, that's a small even smaller one, 44 units there. Um more more high-end, larger, luxurious kind of more outdoor space, all that type of thing. So that one we launched in the spring and We're just over 50% sold there. So, um, yeah, really catering to kind of end-user side folks. So feel free to check out that website as well.
0: uh, We're looking at a a number of high-end luxury products right now. So we should talk offline about uh, the structure we're putting together. And I'm sure... uh there's, there's a lot, a lot of uh, business to be done. So thank you so much for coming awesome, on, guys. Have, have a good and, one. Eh? Uh, very entertaining, engaging conversation. Oh, hope I don't get in too much trouble there. <laughs> have a good one, boys. All right, take care. Okay, okay, bye. Soon. Bye. See ya.